Welcome to the fortnightly Peters McGregor Global Investing Podcast. Our aim is to keep abreast of market developments, provide our views on a range of companies and investing topics, and explain how we're positioning our portfolio. Please be aware that this podcast is intended to provide general information only, and that all forms of investing involves risk of capital loss. Make sure to do your own due diligence and seek professional advice before making any investment decisions. Our topic today is spin-offs versus IPOs. The discussions around which may be better for an investor and what should an investor be looking for. My name is Alex Haynes, Head of Distribution at Peters McGregor. With me today is Nathan Bell, our Head of Research. Welcome, Nathan. Thanks, Alex. So my first question, Nathan, it's an interesting topic um, around spin-offs versus IPOs. We obviously have several IPOs here in the Aussie market every year, but not too many spin-offs. Firstly, can you provide uh, our audience a quick definition of each? So let's start with uh, IPOs or initial public offerings, which most Australians will be familiar with. This is usually when a new business, but not always, sometimes companies can relist, but a new company lists on the Australian stock market. Often people get quite excited about them because they think they can potentially be big gains, Uh, but there are some traps uh, for investors that we're going to talk about shortly. But normally there's one of two reasons why we see IPOs. There's first that the previous owners of the business are looking to sell out. And so one way to do that is to list it on the stock market and essentially hand over the business to, um, you know, just average investors and and, uh, other fund managers like us who will buy shares. And the other reason is that the company is growing quickly and they want to raise money to make more investments and expand. And that's really the best one when you're looking for uh, IPOs. Now, a spin-off is different in that a spin-off is an existing division within a larger business. Uh, Usually the the parent is larger. It spins off a smaller division to become its own uh, company, uh, completely separately listed from the parent on the stock exchange. So uh, fortunately, we've actually got a good example that's coming up, and that's the West Farmers uh, spin-off of Coles. And so West Farmers is a, a very big organisation and it's spinning off coal. So what will happen, uh, although I haven't followed the details, is that all the shareholders will uh, continue to own their West Farmers shares and they'll have new coal shares. And the culmination of those two shares should be equivalent to their um, current holdings. Just to, I guess, to flesh that out a bit more, you know, Nathan, which corporate action do you believe is better for an investor to consider in your view? And... What should an investor be specifically looking for when examining each opportunity? So let's look at IPOs first. So IPOs can be really good when uh, the situation is right. So what are the sort of things you're looking for that's going to really help propel a business and have big gains? Ideally, what you're looking for is the previous owners of the business to keep their holding in the business once it lists. If you see previous management or owners of the business selling out en masse, that's usually a pretty good sign that the, the business is fully valued. Because if you think about it, if you're a business owner, and let's say you've worked in that business for 20 years or 30 years, what you're trying to do is maximise the value or the price you're going to get for selling that business. So an IPO is only just one way of potentially maximising that price. The other way is a trade sale. So this is just where you have a business and you look for someone to buy you out. So normally this would be a much larger business in your industry, and you're an attractive acquisition target, and they decide, you know, forget about the stock market, they just decide they're going to buy you outright, 
so you sell your business to them so your business never hits the stock market one of the reasons that the stock market is a good place to sell quite often is uh, particularly in strong bull markets is people get very excited about shiny new toys and they get very uh, excited about new businesses and because what you've got to imagine is when you see the prospectus it's going to be full of good news and obviously there's a, a number of pages in there about the risks but they're going to talk to you about how great their business is all their growth options and people I think always feel and Warren Buffett commented on this many years ago he said the chances of um, a prospectus landing in your letterbox the chances of that opportunity being the best opportunity in the stock market at that time uh, is absolutely minimal but we get excited we feel like special particularly when it's often hard to get the shares often you have to be with a certain broker uh, or you might actually have to know someone who can get you in early so there's this fear of missing out which I think really helps uh, people get interested in the, in the stocks to start with and I think we always just like new stories uh, it's, it's one thing to be looking at the stock market and looking over all these old businesses that we've known and they, if they work out and they, sorry if they continue to operate well that's absolutely fine but we always like something new and we get quite excited about new and there's actually a lot of research that shows that we're always prepared to pay more uh, for a shiny new toy or a shiny new stock in our case so you've got to be really careful we we overvalue and uh, new investment ideas and we also overvalue uh, what we currently own interesting enough but that's a story for another day so with IPOs you've got to be really careful about one is the valuation right two is this a good business that's going to grow uh, and add value and three have a look at uh, what what the existing owners or previous owners of the business are doing are they selling out uh, or is this an opportunity for them just to really grow the business and they just looking for more capital that um, and that's the best way they can get it so if we move to spin-offs, spin-offs actually, uh, sorry, I should say about IPOs, they have a very mixed record about working out, but I think in people's minds, we tend to remember the ones that have really gone really, really well, and that's what we're expecting every time we see an IPO, but actually, um, I don't have any numbers, but um, my guess is less than half would do very well, and if you looked at longer, longer periods, um, I expect much, much more of them would do much worse over time. Spin-offs are completely different in that spin-offs aren't someone selling out. Okay, So what you do with a spin-off is you've identified a division of the business that potentially usually isn't a large part of the existing business and management don't want to give it all its resources because if you're sitting there and you're the CEO and you're getting rewarded for big increases in the profits over time uh, and you've got this small division that's only say 5% of revenues, then you're just not going to spend a lot of time on it because it's not going to move the needle for the business or for your bonuses. And what tends to happen is that you might have really good management uh, sitting over that division, but they've got to fight against a bunch of other different business uh, managers in the business to get capital to go and make investments. And if the big CEO is sitting there going, well, this business doesn't make much difference to me, then you're probably not going to get the capital you need. So what often happens is this smaller division lists on the stock market as a separate entity. Uh, it comes with a new CEO. Um, maybe that might be an existing person within the business, but they might, you know, might have been a chief operating officer before. They'll become the new CEO. And often, what we see in a spin-off is actually the share price is, in contrast to an IPO, uh, can be quite depressed very quickly. And there's a couple of reasons for that. One is because in an IPO, people are incentivized to talk it up. So often, the higher the price you can get for the IPO. Existing owners are happy, but also the brokers are very happy because they get a, a cut. Lot of money. Absolutely, 
And so with a uh, spin-off, it's completely different in that the CEO of a spin-off often doesn't get their options priced uh, until the stock's already been listed for a little bit. So it's actually in their interest to talk the stock price down, then have their options priced, and then it magically, as we see through the research in years two and three of a spin-off, turns out to be these essentially magic years for spin-offs where all this value that couldn't be seen two years ago or a year ago um, all of a sudden comes to the surface and that's how you get these wonderful performing uh, spin-offs. And so with spin-offs, uh, often what you also see is that the big investors tend to stay with the parent entity. And if you're managing $2 billion, $3 billion, $4 billion, then all of a sudden there's a small spin-off that's only hundreds of millions of dollars potentially you don't want to own that because it's just you can't get enough of the stock in your portfolio to make any difference to your returns. So what often happens is you've got a bunch of owners now of the spin-off that don't actually want to own the company, so they just dump it on mass. They don't really care about the value. Uh, they just want to get rid of it because it's just annoying to them. So often you see these big share price falls, and then, of course, that works beautifully for the new CEO who hasn't priced his options yet. Uh, and then um, that's how you get this, I guess, a completely different setup where you get this really unloved, unwanted listed entity in contrast to an IPO where you've got this you know, fear of missing out, overriding everything else, and people very excited. So I guess just to drill into it a little bit further, what would be some of the best spin-offs you've seen in the last couple of years and the worst? So I just uh, picked out one. Uh, one of our analysts dug this up for me. So this is uh, an American company. Uh, the company is called Chemours, C-H-E-M-O-U-R-S, and Chemours was a spin-off of DuPont, and DuPont is a uh, massive chemicals business in the US, and you may have heard of some of its products before, as Kevlar and Lycra, but there's a whole bunch of others, that scientific names that you probably haven't heard of, but this has been a company that's been around for um, over uh, about 120 years now, I think. So this is a, it's a big company, I think revenues are about 30 or 35 US billion dollars when it spun off Chemours. And Chemours today has about $6 billion in revenue. So again, here's a situation where about uh, Chemours is about 20% of revenues compared to the, the bigger organisation. And it was spun off in July 2015. And the price when it spun off, it ended, I think, the first day at about $20.85. Now, what happened in the next uh, seven months was that the stock price plummeted and it actually got down to below $4. So within eight months, uh, the stock price had fallen from 21 to $3.88. So this huge fall, and you know, I'm not a favor with the details, but again, my guess is here, a lot of the owners of DuPont wouldn't have wanted to own this small business. And so they would have been selling through this process. So nothing to do with the value of the actual spin-off itself, but just because of, I guess, what we call liquidity, is these big investors don't want to hold this small uh, business like we just spoke about. So they sell it, the share price collapses, and no one's interested until uh, some smaller managers actually start to look into this business and the share price now, which is and realize. <laughs> is like down 70 or 80% and say, actually, hang on, there's potentially some value here. Uh, and then within uh, the end of 2017, so October 2017, so that's it's gone from $4 in February 2016 to the end of 2017, $60. So, so that's um, you can start to see why it's like you've made fifteen times your money if you if you're fortunate enough or lucky enough to pick the bottom there. You can see why spin-offs can create a lot of value, and if you even look at the first price when it debuted at twenty one dollars, it still tripled from there. 
So that's just one example of one that's worked out really well, but it really has that what we call a typical history of a spin-off where it's it's very small or it's small compared to the parent. It gets sold off by the big investors, share price down 70 or 80%. The value investors come in and actually two years in, all the value, you know, the new CEO, he's got all the access to the cash he needs to make investments. All of a sudden the margins are going up, he's, he's taking costs out, he's doing all these things that he wanted to do before but he couldn't. And, and hopefully he's got a nice balance sheet to work with now. And um, so all these great things and all of a sudden the value is created within a fairly short period. So an example of a... Yeah, what's a bad one? A bad one, I'll just go through to um, one that I think most people would have heard of, which was a couple of years ago now, which was Dick Smith. And Dick Smith had uh, a history of, this is why I, I get very nervous about IPOs, is it had a private, it had been listed before. Um, or it was part of Woolworths, and uh, private equity came in, bought the division of Dick Smith, said we're going to fix it up, and their version of fix it up usually involves putting a lot of debt into the company and stripping it of cash, uh, which they keep for themselves, and they also earn big fees for doing this. And the private equity, there's also a few things that they typically do. Uh, often a couple of things I've seen in, in my experience is that uh, they don't generally invest for the long term in the business. Uh, so um, so companies, they really need a lot of uh, investment in them just to keep normal profits going and retail is a particularly difficult uh, industry to be in. So if you don't make a lot of the investments, whether it's marketing perhaps or um, having good stock, so you've got the, the right things to sell, a lot of these things can come home and to haunt you very quickly, particularly in retail. And so what we saw was Dick Smith uh, almost collapsed on the spot. It really didn't even make 12 months and um, you know it's been well written in the media uh, about what the story was but the one thing that would have kept me away from this for a start was that private equity owned this business, they hadn't owned it for very long and when they're selling, I mean what do you think their incentive is? Their incentive is to get the best absolute price for it that they can so they got people all excited about the growth story for Dick Smith but if you looked underlying there was a whole bunch of financial quirks um, that gave you a sense that actually this was quite risky. And once you've got a retailer with debt, like that's a bad mix anyway, um, let alone all the issues they had with stock. Um, so they did very well selling off a lot of stock early and taking a lot of cash out of the business. Uh, and then the new shareholders on the market uh, were left holding the bag. So uh, moving on, I know Alex, you wanted to talk, um, ask me, so that's some, um, you wanted to ask me about what a good IPO is. Yeah. And so, so I had a feeling that there's been some Chinese seen plenty of dust. <laughs> so some Chinese technology stocks. Uh, I knew have, a couple of them haven't been listed for a long time, but uh, so we own JD.com and, and Baidu's and other ones, the Google of China. But one that's actually listed a fair while ago, but so it's not the last couple of years, but um, it's just worked out exceedingly well. Uh, is a company called Tencent. Now, if you don't know Tencent. Tencent is well known for its WeChat messaging service, which basically every Chinese person has. There's about uh, there's almost a billion accounts now, and which which is basically everyone in China. And there's um, apparently 400 million of them spend at least two hours per day on ten on the Tencent WeChat app. So it's almost like having the internet in an app within the internet. So think of Tencent. Uh, it's got your, your free messaging service, phone service. 
Uh, it's got like a Facebook service within it as well. It's got like a PayPal payment system. So all of this within the one app. So this is why Tencent app is so popular. Now the company listed in Hong Kong on 16th of June 2004 at 81 Hong Kong cents. Now just in January just passed, the stock price got to 471 Hong Kong dollars. Uh, it's recently come down to around 380. But that to me is an example of an absolutely wonderful IPO. Uh, but it all it didn't um, you know, necessarily happen on day one for this company. This was a company that was turns out has this wonderful manager in Pony Ma. Uh, and in the end, it's developed some wonderful games. It really makes most of its money from online gaming, but it's got a few other tricks up its sleeve with the, the PayPal payments-like service. So this has been an absolutely phenomenal company. And the difficulty is, though, when you see these companies first come out, is it's very often, particularly in technology, it's very hard to predict what it's going to look like in 10, let alone 15 years. And this was just one that worked out absolutely exceptionally well. But to bring this back full circle, this is why people get so excited about IPOs because they hear about these few absolutely obscene winners and then think, okay, this next one's going to be that without actually doing their homework and actually looking through the financials and looking for a few of those tricks and, and why management or the former owners are selling out. And Nathan, you've been known for applying a, a three-year rule when looking at an IPO. I mean, you know, why do you, I guess you know, you've answered half of it, but why do you apply this? And again, can you give me an example? So I've got two, but uh, one is just one we spoke about, which is Dick Smith. I think it didn't even last a year before that collapsed. So, so the the three year period um, that I use is basically that gives you enough time for some of these tricks, as I call them, of the previous owners might have done to boost the cash flow of the business to come out. So, if a business hasn't been uh, had a lot of investment in it, then you know one, two, or three years, you'll start to see the operations fall off. Uh, you'll start to see sales growth come off because either they haven't been marketing the business or um, a lot of fixed asset businesses, um, so I'll move on from Dick Smith. A company called Penrice Soda Holding, and uh, this is one that most people would never have heard of. Uh, this is where I learned the lesson about being very careful about who's selling the business. And Penrice Soda Holding was a South Australian company that owned the only soda ash production facility in Australia. And you thought that would have been pretty good and because um, it has its uh, quarry in South Australia. And as we know, it's if you've got these businesses where it's actually really expensive to carry the materials from a site to the customer, um, you don't really want to have to move that stuff very far. So if you've got the quarry, um, that's obviously very handy and, a, and a, of great value. And so um, what happened with Penrise Soda was, one, it actually turned out that it actually was cheaper to import soda ash than it was to buy it and move it around from South Australia to, to customers. So that was one really bad thing. But the second thing was I remember going through the prospectus and you could see that, and this is one of the things you have to be really careful with prospectus is they don't show you a lot of detailed financial historical information. But there was a few years there where you could see the depreciation cost was coming down. And what that did was it boosted the profit, which looks great, right? But this is a, talk about a facility that um, processes soda ash very dusty, dirty, you know, horrible environment, very wear, lots of wear and tear. And so you need to be investing in that product, in that equipment all the time, otherwise it starts to deteriorate. And so when you see depreciation going down, that's telling you the investments aren't being made in that, that infrastructure. 
And so what happened was um, the company actually needed a whole heap of money at the same time revenues were falling to reinvest in, in the plant and actually keep it up to scratch. So you got this disaster where you know, debt uh, got listed with debt from the previous private equity owners, which essentially had stripped the cash out. And this, this profit, which you thought were going to be, you know, there was always nice hockey stick expectations of profit over the first few years. That didn't come about because of the issues with the cheaper soda rash. And so it almost made it sound like it was a monopoly supplier, but actually there was this whole uh, import market that was um, you know, much, much cheaper. So that's a, and Penrice went broke. So you need to be really, really careful with IPOs. And again, Nathan, you've said in the past spin-offs have provided a more reliable source of profits for investors, um, you know, in your view, v IPOs. Why do you believe this is the case? And should investors then look to sell their stake in the parent? So spin-offs have a tremendous record in the US. You know, we don't see the, many of them in Australia, but uh, a great record in the US of creating value. And it's for those reasons I talked about where you've actually got a rejuvenated business with a balance sheet that it can now use at management's discretion. You've got very highly motivated CEOs in charge, particularly for the first time in a business, so they want to do really well. And you often get that big sell-off initially that creates a great setup to buy something much, much cheaper than what it's worth. And so that's why spin-offs tend to work, is just because there's a whole bunch of value that previous management hasn't been willing to invest in the business. Um, that the new manager can come in and create and, and you also get that big sell-off. Now, if you look at more recently, if you look at the period sort of through the late 90s and early 2000s, spin-offs did actually wonderfully, wonderfully well. The market's not completely blind to this these days. So the, in the last 10 years, spin-offs as a group haven't done as well and statistics show that about 60% of spin-offs do well. So you could actually buy every spin-off and you would do just fine, even though the returns today are probably not as high as what they used to be. Um, but you could also um, try and pick those six stocks and, and then try to do really well, which is essentially what we try to do. So that's so that's statistics for spin-offs. Um, now IPOs, uh, sorry, I should say one other thing too is um, we've seen a lot of technology companies uh, we talk about founder-led companies. This is sort of going slightly off track here, but um, you know these like Facebook. I say that IPOs don't do generally do that well, but we've seen some founder-led businesses like the U.S. technology stocks, where the founders have actually listed their businesses, have kept the majority of their own personal wealth in those businesses, and they've been absolutely phenomenal investments. So this is your Googles, um, Facebooks, Netflix. Um, these can be wonderful IPOs and just I just want to underline that the key to looking at these is the founders weren't selling out. You know, they really believed in these businesses and they really wanted the capital to grow. So those as a group have done extraordinarily as well. But it's just with that caveat, when you see an IPO, is the existing management or the existing owners of the business willing to keep their money invested in those businesses? That's a Stick real around. absolutely that's a real giveaway that there's potentially really something good here. Um, now the question is, well, um, if, the, if the sibling, the, the smaller spin-off, does well, is it worth selling the parent? And because we've talked about how the big investors tend to stick with the parent. And interestingly, what the statistics show, or the research shows, is actually in the first two or three years, it's actually well worth hanging on to the parent as well. Um, now, it's actually a bit less obvious why that is the case. 
Um, but I think part of it is that often we see a lot of conglomerates uh, spinning off businesses, and, and that makes sense because conglomerate businesses tend to trade at a discount where it's 10 to 20% usually of what the underlying businesses is. There's no real rule for it, but it's just if you see, look over time, uh, conglomerates don't usually work very well, which is why there aren't many of them left. They sort of a bit of an 80s theme where people sort of cobbled all these different businesses together. And these days you see more activists trying to actually get management to split these companies off because um, they can actually be run much better when they've got their own individual right, CEOs. Right. Absolutely. And um, you've got motivated CEOs. And it means the top brass of CEO can actually focus on just one or two businesses rather than three or four, which is actually quite difficult. The reason a lot of CEOs don't want to do this is because they get paid more for managing a bigger business. Uh, so you can see their incentives are quite different. But um, the latest trend is you're seeing the spin-offs. Uh, but the parents actually done much better as well. And that, and that makes some sense in that it's a less complicated business and um, people in the market or investors are prepared to pay higher multiples for simpler businesses. And so that's where you get that sort of double value where you've got uh, the re-energised spin-off uh, and then you've got a much simpler parent, which is simpler to analyse, and investors are prepared to give the higher multiple. Nathan, in our current portfolio, is there any spin-off or potential spin-offs that you'd care to comment on? There's one, uh, this is falls into the poorly performing uh, spin-off camp so far. And so, again, it's a classic example of the smaller business just getting no attention from the bigger investors. Uh, the company is called Liberty Latin America. Uh, the ticker is LILA and it's listed on the NASDAQ. And this is essentially the Latin American uh, cable, TV and internet provider uh, as part of John Malone's uh, empire. John Malone is a little bit like the Rupert Murdoch of America. He's America's largest landowner and he's worth billions and billions of dollars through investing in cable companies through the 60s and 70s and, and out till today. Uh, he actually has a better record than Warren Buffett, I believe, over the last 30 years. So he's been an incredible uh, creator of value. Uh, Liberty Latin America used to be part of Liberty Global, which we also own. And Liberty Global is the European uh, business. And it's worth about $40 billion uh, US dollars. And Liberty Latin America, in contrast, is only worth around $4 billion. So this is your classic parents, much bigger than the smaller division. And Mike Fry's uh, runs... Uh, Liberty Global, and you can just see, or, you know, you're certainly not going to ever say, say this to you, but when you've got one business that's worth 10% of the total business, you're just not going to give it everything it needs. And um, Liberty to Latin America now has its own, uh, is its own business. It's uh, fully spun off uh, early this year, late last year. Uh, it actually was a tracking stock for a while, which is like a spin-off, but it actually doesn't have its full new CEO on board yet. Um, but it trades separately, so you can actually buy the, the tracking stock if you want. But that's actually something that's kept investors away because a lot of investors don't have mandates to own tracking stocks. Uh, but once they spin off and they're actually a fully com a full company with proper board and its own CEO, then they can buy the stock. And so what we've, what we've seen with Liberty Latin America so far is uh, the share price has just continued to languish. Uh, part of the reason is the operating performance hasn't been terrific so far. We think that's temporary and that's going to change. Um, the CEO, Balanair, uh, has only become the CEO in the last uh, five or six months. So again, we think it's a case of look to year two and three. Share price is nice and low now. Um, he'll be very motivated. He was the chief operating officer of the division before. Uh, he'll want to do a really good job. He'll want to show, particularly as part of the Liberty Empire, um, that you know maybe he can do a really good job with this and then get a 
bigger job with one of the bigger companies later on in his career. So he'll want to do well. And another thing that's also that's knocked this stock around is uh, is 5% of its business is related to Puerto Rico. And if you're following um, the weather in the news last year, you'll see those massive hurricanes that absolutely decimated the country. And it completely knocked out you know, all the wires and cables that um, this company operates. Uh, the good news is that uh, within six months, I think it was that, about 60% of everything working again. Mm. And the company actually has insurances for this. So it's not like they've lost a whole bunch of money. Obviously, they can't charge people for when they're not getting a service, but they had insurance in place for this. Uh, but obviously, it has had some small impact on the revenue. So at a time when you've got a much smaller company coming onto the market, which big investors have sold off because they want to stay with Liberty Global as the $40 billion business, um, you've also had Puerto Rico, which has hurt the results, and it's actually just been uh, not great operating results in some of their bigger markets with a bit of price competition, but we think that's subs um, subsiding now. And so the setup for the next two or three years, we think, looks really good. It's currently, you know, it's just gone up the last couple of days to around $20 a share. We think it's worth at least 35 uh, and we fully expect um, this happen to the next couple of years if our um, investment case is correct. And Nathan, is the broad theme increased in net usage in South America? Absolutely. So people are very worried about these cable companies having losing cable TV subscribers. Uh, this hasn't been uh, a big thing uh, in these South American markets. These are, uh, I know most people get a bit of fear about investing in South America, but uh, these are very regulatory friendly countries where they're well established, where Liberty Latin America is a number of one or two in their markets. Um, they've got good pricing power. Uh, they've got the only subsea uh, cable in the area, which means they can move a lot of traffic and data uh, between large areas quickly, which is what you want as a, a cable provider. Um, you need, you know, the more internet we use, the more you need to be able to move that data quickly. And and the other thing is the internet usage rates in these countries are about half or less what they are in the developed world. So we expect over the next five and ten years, um, that will move up to more developed uh, nation types mm -hmm. data. So more around the 60, 70, 75 percent for fast broadband services. Uh, and we know over time that people are prepared to pay more for those fast broadband services. So there's pricing power there. And then the last option, but this isn't a short-term thing, but we fully expect that the company will make uh, plenty of smaller acquisitions over time. And it's quite a fragmented market, and it makes sense that the biggest company with the most scale will be able to just chip away over time and buy these businesses, tuck them in, and, and increase their profit margins. Thank you, Nathan. Um, quite a bit covered there. Thank you, everyone, for listening today. Please feel free to share this podcast. If you have any questions, um, to email through to our email address, which is service at petersmcgregor.com.